0: Because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. We have a fabulous guest today. We have in our studio Susan Knapp, CEO and founder of N2ED Africa. Our focus on this show is to do our best to help change the world for the better. And Susan Knapp and her organization focus on doing that with people that are often forgotten about and live in conditions most of us could not even relate to. She has set up sustainable educational facilities and purposeful enterprises in Kenya and Rwanda. Rwanda, as you are aware, has only recently recovered as much as you can recover from the 1994 genocide where over half a million to one million people died in a country of only 12 million. Kenya, although politically stable and one of the wealthiest African countries, still has 45% of its people living below the poverty line and is ranked 124 out of 180 in corruption. Of course, one being the least corrupt. Despite institutional, ethnic, cultural, and a host of other challenges, Susan and her organization strive to make a difference. Susan and her organization are completely aligned with our focus on this show and is making a difference in people's lives as we speak. Susan, welcome to the show. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about uh, uh, your organization
2: thank you so much for having me it's just really really great to be here and wow your show is fantastic I absolutely love everything that you're you're promoting and yeah can't wait to get into this conversation so I uh, was born in Adelaide grew up in Adelaide and at the age of 21 I I left and went on a teenage exchange program. I was a supervisor on a teenage exchange program that was taking students from Adelaide to Kenya. And we had 30 students who were billeted with families in Nairobi and Mombasa. For me, i just finished teacher's college and had always wanted to go to Africa. So for me, I felt like this was a great opportunity to get a cheap trip, We got accommodation paid for and see what the world would bring. So I left and on this two month trip and have come back 25 years later. (laughs) Mm, Wow. (laughs) Uh, With not just in Kenya, I've been in, in lots of other places as well. But at that point, I spent 10 years living and working in Kenya. So I've come from an educational background and most of my professional career has been uh, in the educational realm uh, as a teacher of primary, secondary, English as a second language. I've gone into school leadership. And when I returned to Adelaide, which was at the end of 2017, I returned from my 25 years away broke and broken And I call what was probably a breakdown my breakthrough. And it was during that breakthrough that Intuit Africa was born. So what Intuit Africa is, while it looks like uh, schools and development programs on the ground in Kenya and Rwanda, what it actually is I believe what it actually is is it's a manifestation of my healing. So as I've healed, I've been able to get myself uh, fully connected to my purpose where, um, perhaps, where before that I actually believed that I was dodging my purpose and so I was able to heal, I was able to activate, consciously activate my purpose and so came the birth of Intuit Africa.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's so key. I I, I mean, personally, uh, I I just think that really the only – the biggest key to happiness is being of service to others. I mean, at least for me, I, I believe that's what it is.
2: It's so true. Mm. It's so true. And as part of – so our mission of Intuit Africa is to create purposeful enterprises that transform communities. So while we operate in Kenya and Rwanda, that's very much embedded in what I do here in Adelaide as well. And one of the big things when I return to – so I've spent – my whole adult life in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And I returned to Australia and was confronted literally when I – I'd been back for holidays and what have you, but I was literally confronted uh, at a stopover in Sydney with homeless people and homeless people that were actually like creating these tent cities in the middle of Sydney. And then I got back to Adelaide and, and settled here a little bit and just discovered these enormous rates of anxiety and depression and suicide and mental illness. And I thought, what's going on? In my whole adult life, I have never seen the epidemic proportions of this as I saw when I came back. And I think it's because... I think uh, one contributing factor is because we have forgotten or we've never been consciously um, taught that we are here to be of service. Mm. And when you understand that you're here to be of service, and this is why I know we'll talk about my kids and their enterprises a bit later, but this is why my fundamental value for raising my children is so they have an embedded understanding of why they are here at this point in time and it is
0: to be of service. Mm. Off the topic, I'm going to tread in some water that might might <laughs> go get me for it. Trouble, we love it. Okay? We love it. <laughs> well, I don't know if the station loves it, but anyway, um, do you feel? I mean, culturally, when people have so much in Australia, one of the richest wor- countries in the world, okay, how how do you reconcile that in your mind with people in Africa, you know, uh, that have a lot less? I mean, I I I, th- I remember reading. Uh, recently, that in Kenya, the average Kenyan, uh, well, I think it was 27 percent of people in Kenya, maybe it was 29, somewhere between 25 and 30, make less than a dollar ninety US per day. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, how do you reconcile? people feeling like they're entitled to this and entitled to that <laughs> in Australia. You know, I'm entitled to the yeah, Just that whole concept. I mean, even the government says these are your entitlements. How do you reconcile that versus the rest of the world where you've been in the Middle East, and you've been in Africa, you've been in Asia? How do you, I mean, what, what's your It's been really challenging. I mean, what's your...
2: It, yeah, it, it has been really challenging because I think entitlement detracts from creating a culture of gratitude mm. and i think that systems and practices here in australia have actually created this entitlement that people are not even conscious of the fact that they are living through this entitlement paradigm and when i came back i went into the classroom to teach and i actually lasted nine months and just said i can't do this because mm. the the lack the, the the lack of gratitude for something like education and the enormity of entitlement was so conflicting with what I believe my integrity to be. Mm. So I've really, really struggled with it. But what I'm attempting to do through IntoEd Africa is actually cre- um, creating this concept of transforming global landscapes. So I'm sure you've heard the saying that sometimes the poorest people only have money. Mm. And when we're looking at life in some Western cultures, where there is this entitlement and there is this enormous amount of money, there's quite often there's actually more problems. And one of the problems is the decaying of one's soul. Mm. So when you go onto my Facebook or when you go onto our Intuit Africa website, one of the things that you'll see. Our children live with no running water, no electricity. They'll have one toilet between 100 people. Um, my daughter is running a sanitary pad project. They, they ha- Women, girls don't have sanitary pads, so they can't go to school. So when you're looking from a, an element of life of, you know, I don't even have a sanitary pad, which means I'm going to wait a week before I can go to school, mm. and I don't even have a toilet to sit on. Mm. I'm sitting, waiting. Um, I actually however the children in our schools and in our communities in Kenya they smile from their soul Mm. and you when you see pictures of African kids their eyes are always so ignited and so beautiful and I actually think that Again, through our organisation, it's about teaching people in Australia that we can learn as much, if not more, from people who live in resource poor communities. Mm. And, and that doesn't just have to be in Africa, it can be here on our doorstep. These are our teachers, and they're also our guides, and they're usually our guides towards a place of gratitude rather than entitlement. Mm.
0: Well, wow. that's a great point. I, I, you know, and I mean, I'm speaking in general terms here, but I, I think it's important for us to keep it in perspective. I mean, in, in in Africa, being poor means you have nothing to eat and no place to sleep. You yeah. know, in in America, you know, uh, it means you have no place to sleep. You know, in Australia, I mean, there there's a homeless community but I mean Australia's done a great job of solving that as much as it can be solved. I mean there's still room to improve but being I mean a lot of the people that say they're poor in Australia are overweight. (laughs) You know? And 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 and, you know they complain about the price of cigarettes and they only have one car. You know? And, And I mean I mean, go to Africa and tell somebody that you can be poor and fat. They're just not going to buy into that. No, they're I mean, not I guess I'm not, to not supposed to say that. fat, but I'm fat, so I can say. It. So, <laughs> no, they're certainly not going to buy you into know, that. But um,
2: but then yeah, I also think yeah. that there there is such a thing as a poverty mindset. Mm. So it's also teaching people, and this is something else that we we do through Intuit Africa. It's about teaching people that again, and I think it comes back to gratitude. Mm-hmm. You can be grateful And when you are grateful for what it is that you have The the frequencies and the energies within you change And then you draw in more gratitude mm-hmm. And less entitlement And more peace
0: Wow Well, that's a lot to think about <laughs> And, and uh, we we're going to hear a little bit more A lot more, hopefully From awesome. Susan Knapp here In just a little bit mm-hmm.
1: As your parents get older, at some stage it's likely they'll need your help. At Southern Cross Care, we'd love to help you help them. Our wide range of quality home care services are designed to take care of mum and dad, their health, home and even garden. We're compassionate, capable, police checked and proudly South Australian. If you want the best home care for your parents, call 1-800-852-772 or visit southerncrosscare.com.au. Better.
3: Better, better for life. Governo locale, mercoledì dalle 11 alle 12 Con Patrizia e Tony Solo
2: su Radio Italia 1 87.6 FM Looking for a new coffee machine for your home or workplace? Look no further than Fine Choice Coffee Solutions You're experts in all things coffee Why not come in for a chat and a special coffee tasting? You'll find us at 264 Gilbert Street in the city
0: you're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello, and welcome back. We're here with Susan Knapp from In2Ed. Uh, and uh, in the last session, we were talking about the importance of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, you made some awesome points there. And it reminded me about a study I read about suicide, uh, not, not trying to be too much of a downer here, but the interesting thing was, if you look at the, the both sides of the economic spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, the super poor mm-hmm. and the super rich, the statistics are about, are almost identical. It's, the difference yeah. is negligible. Yes. So it's not really about material. You know, nice. it's not about what you have, because it's never going to be enough. No it's matter enough. what you have, it's never enough. Yep, okay? Yep, yep. And it's about your mindset, you know, and it's about, you know, what's in your heart. And, yeah. And, and you talked about having this, this uh, uh, in America we say, come to Jesus moment, <laughs> but uh, breakthrough, you know? Yeah, my breakthrough. Or, or you know, uh-huh. the beginning of your hero's journey, where you mm. were going along and then all of a sudden, bam, you just realized wow, this is what I need to do is yeah. be of service to others. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please?
2: Sure. So I I think I have, uh, generally, like through the profession that I chose, which was to go into education and being a teacher, I think I have pretty much been of service. But I was also the sort of teacher who um, was, I like to be a bit of a disruptor. So, for example, I used to have a popcorn machine in my classroom, and every day I would make popcorn for the kids. Uh, when I started teaching secondary kids, I, the first thing, that I did was put an oven in my classroom so that I could bake brownies for them when they were coming into class. So I think I have always been of service, but it was more about really activating my purpose. And so, Matt, I actually have a PhD in being fired. Mm. I'm a professional at it. Mm. And I've had really epic firings. I don't just like get fired and then um, off you go. I, for example, I got fired from one of my jobs in Qatar, which resulted in me being held under country arrest in this country for one year.
0: So not something you'd recommend (laughs) to a friend.
2: I still recommend it. I still recommend it. And I'll tell you why, because it still comes back to gratitude. Um, I got held under country arrest for one year. Mm -hmm. I had a court case that was completely conducted in Arabic for a crime that wasn't actually a crime. And I didn't need a lawyer or anything. I lost my house. I lost because the house was connected to the job. I lost the right for my children to go to school mm. because that was connected to my job. I was seven months pregnant at the time that I got fired. I then gave birth to a baby who was illegal in this Middle Eastern country because her mother didn't have a job. Mm. Okay, So I have these epic firings. I subsequently moved to Rwanda and got fired again. And that firing was um, – it was like, Susan, you, we're firing you and we're putting you on a plane tonight to get out of this country. And I'm thinking, have I done something anti-government? You know, I'd moved my entire life to this country. I had no money. I sold my shoes to pay for a bus ticket for my two-year-old and myself to travel 39 hours from Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, to Nairobi. So I, yeah, so I, I have these epic firings. But now that I have gotten myself on purpose and really understand that essence of being of service, even from those experiences, I actually have nothing but eternal gratitude. And... It was, they, they all, all of those, all of those situations in life built up to the breakdown. The, the situation in Qatar left me financially bankrupt. I let, lost everything that I also owned in Australia, which included two houses. Um, but in that time period, the biggest thing that I lost was my kids. So when I was stuck in Qatar, I had to put my three older children, who at that time were five, 10 and 16 on a one-way ticket to Australia, I ended up getting them back three years later. So their dad lived in Australia, so they were coming here to be with their dad. So I didn't live with my kids for three years. Wow. Three years of missed Christmases and missed birthdays and missed Mother's Day and three years of eternal sobbing through those moments. Um, and again, I actually now have an enormous amount of gratitude for it because what I'm also doing is teaching my children, like I said before, that they're here to be of service and it activates your soul and it actually gives you peace.
0: So what did you you get charged with in Qatar? (laughs) That
2: That might be for another show. So no, what happened was Qatar has some really unique labor laws Uh and so... They also allow you to take out bank loans. So I had taken out a bank loan. I'd been in this country for 10 years. So I'd taken out a bank loan, which I was paying off and had never defaulted on. But then when I lost my job, their labor laws also at that time didn't allow you to get another job. When you lost your job, you needed to leave the country.
3: Oh. Okay. But because
2: I had a bank loan, I couldn't leave the country. So then what they do is they then start this court case, which is this really nonsensical process, because you're going to court. You haven't really committed a crime. You don't need a lawyer. It's being conducted in Arabic. The only Which,
0: lo- of course, you don't speak. Yeah,
2: which right. I don't speak. Yeah, okay. The only logical solution is they either enable me to get another job so that I can pay off the loan
3: mm-hmm.
2: or they uh, fold the loan. And let me leave. Mm. And they weren't going to do either of those things. But at the time, what I also learned is there were thousands of people in this situation in Qatar. And many of them were nowhere near as fortunate as me. In the end, my dad, who was here in Adelaide, bailed me out more than $50,000 for me to get out of this country. So
0: so what's the ultimate, you know, what's the worst case scenario there? Is it like... You know in the 1800s where they have debtors prison basically or what? well
2: you you yeah it's kind of you are kind of in prison I mean there's a lot of low income workers who don't have someone back in their home country who can who can bail them out even a thousand dollars so Qatar has actually changed a lot of these labor laws since I left, so I'm not sure if it still happens. Like that. But I also still, despite all of this, I have an enormous amount of gratitude. We've been back to that country three times Mm. and we love it. And my kids still consider it their home. They were both born there. My youngest two were born there. Mm. And again, it's that's like a life lesson in gratitude.
0: Mm. Well, what I'm getting from this is their airline <laughs> might be great, but their labor laws maybe not so good.
2: Their airline <laughs> is amazing, and I think <laughs> their I think their labor laws have changed because okay. they're hosting the World Cup next year. Okay. So, and you know, it is one of those things though. When you're in Rome, it, they are their laws. Yeah. Of Who course, am I you to judge? F-
0: yeah, you got to follow their laws. Um, yeah.
2: It was it was their procedure.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow, well that's a, a fascinating segue <laughs> story <being> that, <laughs> that, I, that I didn't see coming, but uh, we're going to have more here with Susan Knapp, and I'm sure more there are going to be some big, big surprises in just a little bit.
1: Gli obblighi <laughs> dei datori di lavoro per la superannuation stanno cambiando. Per fare risparmiare agli australiani miliardi di dollari in tariffe e premi assicurativi. A partire dal 1 novembre, il conto della Super seguirà i dipendenti quando cambieranno lavoro. Se i nuovi dipendenti non sceglieranno loro stessi un fondo, i datori di lavoro dovranno usare il portale ATO per richiedere i dettagli del loro esistente fondo pensione. Per maggiori informazioni su quello che devi fare, visita il sito YourSuper.gov.au Autorizzazione del governo australiano Canberra Hi, I'm David Heath Join me each Saturday afternoon From 2pm until 5pm With Saturday Sports Scoreboard No matter what your sports passion We'll be covering it during our three hours together I'll be crossing to various sporting events We'll chat with your favourite sports stars And we'll take your calls Every Saturday afternoon, 2 until 5, on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Ora più che mai, l'assistenza che le famiglie conoscono e di cui si fidano è qui per te. A bene! Con i nostri servizi di assistenza domiciliare i tuoi cari diventano nostri. Offriamo servizi di supporto sociale e assistenza per fare la spesa ed Andrea si è sentito completamente a suo agio.
3: Il personale è stato fantastico fornendomi supporto sociale a casa.
1: Bene, fornisce servizi per mantenere uno stile di vita attivo e di benessere, assistenza domiciliare o residenziale agli anziani, con rispetto e calore. Con bene, sei in famiglia. Chiamaci all'81 31 duemila visitaci su Bene.org.au
2: Foodland's proudly owned by South Australian families like mine. Our stores are our second home. And just like home, we want you to feel safe and looked after when you visit. Thankfully, our customers have always acted like mighty South Aussies when shopping with us. Which, by the way, supports all the local family-owned brands who produce the essentials you find on our shelves. Great families, great locals, and great food lives here.
1: The yeah. Radio Italia Uno.
0: You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM. Hello, we're back with Susan Knapp from In To Ed, which is an organization that focuses on proving improving the lives of people in Kenya as well as Rwanda. And in the last session, we discussed some of the challenges you've had as a world globetrotter. <laughs> <The> adventures, okay. <laughs> um, uh, I but I I want to talk a little bit about the fact that I know that one of your core beliefs mm-hmm. is that is that victimhood is uh, not acceptable, you know, and and you and that you're committed as is this show into this battle, a, a battle against this whole idea this whole culture of victimhood that's mm. that's growing like mm. a cancer mm. in the West. Yeah, okay? it is.
2: That's put so well. So
0: um <laughs> take it away. <laughs> so do you want another story? Yeah, tell me tell me <laughs> tell me why how you feel about that and and why you think it's it's counterproductive and
2: yeah. Okay. So, and and I'll attach it to a small story, which um, is, is also quite an interesting one. So I'd I'd gone from, we spoke in the last segment about um, me having a PhD and being fired, but having these epic firings. So I got out of my predicament in Qatar, um, then took a job in Rwanda, got into another predicament, got out of that. Subsequently arrived back in Australia so, you know, things had been pretty tough. I was now um, completely bankrupt. And also, my whole identity as an adult had been forged by me being an expatriate and living in these worlds abroad. So, actually, coming back to Adelaide was conquering an enormous fear. For me, I actually say to people that it was the 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 biggest fear I had to overcome was actually coming back here. Which people go, huh? But this is easy. Uh, it's not. It's not as easy. Before I got to Adelaide, I took a teaching job up in Cairns, and I'd come back with my second husband, who was half Kenyan, half Rwandese, hmm. and he um, decided so. He came in on a visit visa, and then we needed to. um, I needed to now save up the ten thousand dollars to apply for his residency visa. He, it had been a very, very toxic relationship for the entire six years that we'd been together, and it had been violent. It Mm. had been. It it hadn't been the best, and I kept thinking that by moving to another destination, things would get better. So we're up in Cairns and he got some advice from somebody that he could get his visa fast-tracked if he filed that he was a victim of domestic violence. (laughs) And this is, like, this was just... This was my absolute breaking point. Uh, So one day he... Uh, We'd had an argument and I smashed his phone, which, if anybody doesn't know, is actually considered domestic violence here in Australia. And he went to the local police station and reported me. I had – this is now in my country. So, you know, it's really different when things happen abroad. But when you're in your own country and you think, oh, finally, I'm here and I'm safe – And I had two policemen come into my classroom and take me out and subsequently went through a court case in far north Queensland where I was found, well, I actually pled guilty and then served a five-year good behaviour bond for domestic violence against him. Uh, this, uh, this was the, the catalyst. Sorry, that
0: sign, sound was my eyes rolling. Yeah, Sorry. yeah,
2: yeah. That's where we could put in some language we can't use on air. Um, that was the absolute catalyst for my breakdown. I walked out of court that day. He'd, he'd showed up for the court date and I'd been reunited with my son who I'd been separated with for three years and, mm-hmm. um, And he was now living with me and my youngest daughter. And I walked out of that courtroom and my son said to me, Mummy, are you going to jail now? Mm. So this is a long way around to answer the question. But in terms of being a victim, what am I going to show my children if I become a victim of All of those circumstances. And my circumstances are no different to anybody else's. They're all relative in how much trauma they create, in, in how big your breakdown is. But that's why, and that's why I actually call it a breakthrough. Mm. So again, I, I had young children. My daughter was five. My son was nine. And then I have two older ones. But I had really young children. So am I going to, raise them with a mother who's a victim of these external forces or am I actually going to heal myself and raise them from a point of empowerment and they were they were so little and I really consciously made that decision and anybody who's been on a journey of healing knows it's really really painful and I literally slept for the first three months I arrived back in Adelaide and luckily I was with my mom and she was taking care of me. But to be a victim is actually not an option. Mm. It's actually not an option. It is out of line with our integrity. It is out of line with our human um, need for being of service. If you are a victim, you are not of service.
0: Well, and, and, <laughs> and even – even I, I just don't see the value of being a victim. There's no value. You know, I mean because I mean, the way I look at it and what I try to – Coach people on, you know, is is the fact that, you know, if you're if you're a victim, that means you're powerless. Absolutely. So I mean, if you're taking charge, if you refuse to be a victim, then you have the opportunity to make to improve and to get out of the situation. Absolutely. So, and that's I mean, when you
2: can flip it. I mean,
0: there's no, I mean, there's just no value in being a victim.
2: There, there isn't any value, and that's where you can then flip it to that frequency of gratitude. So I have enormous gratitude. I've learnt to forgive the unforgivable because if I don't do that, I will be a victim
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I'm holding on to those egoic principles that I think serve me but that are actually not serving me. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, they're not serving my kids, they're not serving my friends, they're not serving my family, they're, they're not serving my community and in my case, they're not serving what I do in Africa. Mm. So it's just not an option.
0: Mm. I, I think there's a lot of value in what you're saying. Thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and, and just we have to remember, I mean, I always – I mean, I've had a few, quite a few challenges myself, and I know you have. But you probably play this game with yourself as well where you just say, hey, I've got this new problem. So now it's going to be another chapter in my book that I Absolutely. can brag about later. That's the way Absolutely. I always look at, Absolutely. Look at it. Absolutely. Or
2: it's another lesson yeah. or it's another gratitude opportunity mm, mm. or it's a test of my healing.
0: Mm. Well, with that, we're going to move on and we're going to hear some new and exciting things from you right after this break. There's
2: more new and exciting. A modo
3: mio. A modo mio. Ogni giovedì, dalle 2 alle 5, Con Vincenzo Rullo. Solo su Radio Italia 1, 87.6 FM.
1: Esto vest. A restaurant that offers traditional Italian food that Nonna would approve of. Famous for gnocchi and authentic Napolitana style pizza. And every Thursday night you can enjoy unlimited pizza for just $25. Wonderful coffee and staff that make you feel special. Estovest. Shop 1, 111 Angus Street in the city. To book, visit their website estovest.com.au and click on Book Now. You'll feel like you're in Italy. Radio Italia Uno.
0: You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM. We're back with Susan Knapp from Into Ed mm-hmm. and uh, who is a sworn enemy of victimhood
2: <laughs> absolutely, and
0: uh, and a sworn enemy of poverty yep. who's trying poverty her mindset, best to yep. make the world a better place mm-hmm. through her organization. Uh, do you want, can you tell us a little bit about how other people might be able to help you out? And can you tell, uh, give us some, your website or your Facebook page so people sure. can get some more information?
2: Absolutely. So our Facebook, uh, our website is www.interedafrica.org. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram and on LinkedIn. And I'm a bit of a beginner with those sort of things. So we, we're, we're, we embrace being a work in progress. Um, but yeah. And we've got some events that we're going to be planning next year. So we would love for people to come along. And it'll be just watch our website for details.
0: And I've been completely negligent in not mentioning the fact that you have a radio show that you're doing yourself. Can you tell us about that a we little do? bit? We do.
2: And that's not negligence. We've been so engrossed in the conversation. Mm. So Thank I, you. you too kind. I host uh, what I think is a really cool radio show here on Radio Italia Uno with my uh, beautiful colleagues from the Now Empowerment Collective, Elizabeth E. Elames and Sheree Rowett. And our show is called. You'll be shocked to hear this, Matt. It's called Now We're Talking. <laughs> mm, <imagine laughs> We're that. good at it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I know that your kids. You mentioned before how you've had your children uh, involved in the in your programs mm-hmm. as well, and even spearheading their own programs. Yeah. Can you talk
2: a little bit about those? Sure, I can. So my son. So I have four children. My oldest two I adopted from Kenya as babies. The stories for another day because they're amazing, um, the stories of how I adopted them. And then I had two biological children. My son, who is now 12, when he was in grade three, he came home from school and said, Mom, I'm too stupid to go to school. Mm. And I listened to him. And I really reflected on everything that I'd gone through as a teacher and what I had done and and perhaps how the students would have had perceived what I'd done and thought, OK, I need to provide some conscious education for my kids and let them have a choice in their own destinies. So my son stopped going to school in grade three, at the end of grade three, and when he would have been in grade four, we went to Kenya and we built these two facilities together. Um, and then during COVID, he really, really wanted us to win the lottery house because, you know, cash flow is very limited. We live under my mum's roof with my mum still. And he really wanted us to win the lottery house. And we used to have to go sit out the front of it and meditate. And he packed his bags the day before it was going to be drawn. And then we didn't win. And I said to him, okay, the person who won that really, really needed it. What could you do to earn your own money to get your own house? And he said, I'm a scooter rider and a trampoliner and I can create my own business, which he has subsequently done, which is called 99% Mali. The intention of his business is to make the world 99% kinder, 99% more grateful and 99% more courageous. He has created his own line of clothing with those hashtags on the back. And he also runs a podcast which is called Nine to Nine Seconds with Mali, where he interviews people about those three hashtags. Wow! Then my daughter, who is seventeen, she's adopted from Kenya. She recently started a program to eradicate period poverty from her a community, her community in Kenya, and. In the last 12 months she has made and distributed 720 sustainable sanitary packs which she does through her she raises money here in Adelaide through doing some little public speaking events my 7 year old makes soaps and candles and she sells them with the profits going towards buying soap and sanitation program uh, products for kids in Kenya
0: mm. wow <laughs>
2: Wow, mind-blowing. Yeah, the whole yeah, session. That's, that's awesome. It's been like five minutes. <laughs> okay.
0: That's wonderful. Well, I, I just want to thank Mark Aston today for paneling for us. And, and of course, I want to thank you, Susan, for being here with us today. Uh, you can learn more about your programs. Again, can you give us Into that dot org. OK, and please tune in next week, Monday at 6 p.m. for Change the World with Matt McQuinley on 87.6 FM Radio Italia Uno. And as always, I'll leave you with a brief inspirational message. On April 1st, 1942, a scrawny young man who, even though he was eligible for deferment, answered the call of his nation to serve his country in one of its most troubled times. Almost the entire world was engaged in a conflict that would cost more than 50 million lives. However, he felt he had no choice but to serve his country. Unlike almost all of the 16 million American men who wore the uniform during World War II, this young man was a seventh-day Adventist and a conscientious objector which meant his religious beliefs precluded him from killing another human being. Even though he was a conscientious objector, he would tell anyone that would listen that he was not a conscientious objector, he was a conscientious cooperator. You see, he felt he could serve his country and his fellow man by saving lives instead of taking them. He decided to serve his country as a combat medic. His personal beliefs were forged as a young child when he saw his father, who was a World War I vet suffering from PTSD, pull a gun on his uncle. This left him so shaken that he swore he would never pick up a gun again. Remarkably, even though he volunteered for the Army in World War II, he kept true to his word. Anyone listening who's ever been in the military can imagine how well that would have went over in basic training and with the superiors and fellow troops in any unit that he served. He was hazed mercilessly, physically and mentally by both his peers and superiors. He was given the absolute worst details. They did everything they could to make him quit. When those efforts to drive him out failed, His superiors tried every legal means and regulation they could twist to try to get him thrown out. They failed again. He was told by the men in his own unit that the first time they went into combat, they would make sure he never came back. Not only did his fellow soldiers promise that they would make sure he wouldn't make it back alive, in battle, the Japanese targeted medics above regular soldiers. Because of the Japanese warrior code of Bushido, the Japanese were known for fighting to the last man, never surrendering, rarely taking prisoners, and were even known to use suicide attacks. These were the conditions when he went into his first battle, which was on the Japanese island Jungle Fortress of Guam. The U.S. would take approximately 8,000 casualties, and the Japanese just short of another 20,000. In this battle under heavy enemy fire he ran into harm's way unarmed to treat several fallen comrades as well as carry them back to safety. He saved several lives. At the Battle of Guam he won his first bronze star for bravery. After that harrowing experience he saw action in Leyte A battle where the U.S. took over 23,000 casualties and the Japanese a staggering casualty total of just shy of 432,000. It is here that Desmond Doss earned his second Bronze Star for conducting himself in the exact same way through all this carnage. But his greatest test was yet to come. Okinawa. The bloodiest battle for the Allies in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Okinawa was actually part of Japan. The Japanese knew once Okinawa was taken, the next step was the main islands of Japan itself. The USA took 75,000 casualties, 20,000 of them dead. Japan had 100,000 killed and 7,000 taken prisoners. Up to an additional 150,000 civilians committed suicide. In this literal hell on earth scenario, Desmond Doss would rise to the challenge in a way that astounded everyone but himself, for he believed he was doing God's work. His unit was repeatedly trying to take the Maeda escarpment, which was the high ground on a rock face that would come to be known in history as Hacksaw Ridge. Finally, after several attempts, the Americans took the top of the cliff. But it was a trap to draw the Americans in. The Japanese counterattacked viciously. The surviving Americans, of which were only one-third of the original force, were forced to retreat and climb back down the steep cliff. Except for Desmond Doss. He disobeyed orders and refused to leave his wounded comrades. He knew that many more would die without medical attention. He also knew that the Japanese would torture and or kill any survivors. As night fell, without a weapon, under fire, in the dark, all alone for 12 hours, he treated and evacuated 75 men single-handedly by lowering them slowly down the cliff face with nothing but rope, faith, and his iron will. Days later, he was in a shell hole under fire again with two fellow soldiers when a grenade landed near him. He jumped away and tried to kick it away. It blew up, sent him flying and shrapnel tore through his hip and left leg. Although wounded, he refused to allow another medic to expose himself to fire to treat him. He treated his own wounds and waited for five hours to be rescued. While he was being carried on a stretcher to the aid station, his unit was attacked again. He then insisted that another soldier who was more badly injured than he be taken on his stretcher instead. While he was walking to the aid station on his injured leg and hip, which were bleeding and full of shrapnel, he was shot by a sniper, shattering all the bones in his left arm. He then crawled 300 yards to the aid station under fire. Later, when Mel Gibson made a movie about the Battle of Okinawa, this was left out, because he was convinced that no one would believe it and it would call other true events into question. Of the 16 million men in uniform in World War II, only 431 received the Medal of Honor. He never killed another human being, nor even carried a weapon. He was armed only with his Bible, and his faith in God, and his own iron will. What do we learn from Desmond Doss? Well, we learn that there are two kinds of people in the world. The first who belittle others' beliefs, who don't value others, who think like them, and who don't think outside the box. Then there are the kind who do believe every person is important, every person has value, that every person should be treated the way that they would want to be treated themselves. People who might not seem to have the ability or the talent of others, but have the courage of their convictions. And with that courage can do amazing things that very few, if any, even believe is possible. And these people can change the world for the better, for themselves and the people around them. The question is, as always, which one are you?